You know, storytelling is a really interesting thing because a lot of times we look for stories to tell and sometimes they're based on encounters that inspire a story to be told. And sometimes you create stories because you feel this burning need to create something for someone or something. And this is why we're here today. We are come together about storytelling um, and the creation of storytelling with my two wonderful guests here that I'm going to introduce. And hopefully we can talk about how these types of encounters create such important dynamics that um, reveal history, kind of uh, cross-pollinate ideas and bring people from different communities together. So I have here Charles White and Stu Lee with me today. Let me just introduce a brief background. So Charles White is a founding member of the Harlem Playwrights 21, a not-for-profit playwriting workshop which has been operating since 2011. His most recent play, Gong Lum's Legacy, was produced off-Broadway in March very recently by New Federal Theater in conjunction with the Peccadillo Theater Company. And his first full length play, Unentitled, was produced in May of 2020 as part of the Negro Ensemble Company's Emerging Playwrights Competition. And uh, Charles is a graduate of Princeton University where he participated in the creative writing program under the late author, Wilfred Sheet and at NYU Law School. So welcome, welcome, Charles. Thank and you. next I have Stu. Stu Lee is a New York-based actor. He plays Detective Brian Lee in a TV series, Queen of Passion, currently in production. He won a Best Actor Award at the March 2020 Scene Festival for the Formerly Session with Cherry Fu. And he grew up in Taiwan in Argentina, which is really interesting, speaks fluent Spanish, Mandarin, and Taiwanese, formerly trained as a scientist he is passionate about acting and is attending the Anthony Abison School of Acting. So welcome, Stu. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal. So both of you come from very different backgrounds, and yet we're connected here because of a little story that happened with a little encounter. Um, Charles, I'm going to allow you to tell us that story so we can begin to say why we're here together and why we're celebrating this idea of storytelling. Okay. I am a founding member of a playwrights workshop, which you mentioned, Harlem Playwrights 21. And we meet most Fridays between Memorial Day, between Labor Day and Memorial Day. And, you know, playwrights bring scenes and actors come and they read them. And then we have talkbacks and we, we rework the scenes. And, and basically it's an effort for the playwrights and actors to improve our craft. Um, Stu started coming to the group. And I will let Stu, Stu intercede and say how you came to the group. <laughs> um, sure. So I... I thought I met you like through uh, this um, my former act, acting coach uh, Marshall Evans, and I, as a second year student, I was I, I was qualified to attend this wonderful workshop. Uh, but then you reminded me that actually we met before that, and that was when so through this class acting class we had every December uh, we we have this gathering and to showcase our talents and. Uh, in New Jersey, in a, hotel, in a hotel in New Jersey, and you were a judge, and and we were the two, the only two people who were got up in the morning and go to train in the gym, the hotel's hotel's gym, before the the master class started. So that's how we met. Yeah, the the fitness connection. There you go. <laughs> The bodily connection before the cerebral connection. I mean, yeah, the lawyer and the scientist going to work out before our theater stuff. So let, no, let's start, let's go there. I mean, 
Charles, you're a lawyer by practice and by trade. And Stu, you were a scientist before embarking on acting. How do these all interconnect? I mean, this is this is a this is an amazing story in itself. Stu, why don't you go first? How did you have you always been interested in acting, but you never got a chance? Did your parents not allow you to pursue this as a career because it was not something you know viable? Why did you switch to acting? Um, I actually um, so I uh, before before acting, I was always like studying for, in science and school, always like uh, being a good student. Uh, but but uh, yeah, after I told my parents about getting into acting, they they were they were surprised and nicely surprised because my mom uh, actually she she, uh, she wanted to get into acting and never had a chance. And because going back then she was uh, her, my my grandfather uh, her, her dad uh, was against all all kind of like you know like dancing or singing or acting. Um, because back then was I guess because she you know, was more conservative and and uh, she was uh, he was afraid of uh, like something bad happened to to my mom so but anyway so she uh, she was she was nicely surprised and uh, and yeah and I was I, I wanted to try like, new things and I, I fell I fell in love with it. Wow! But then so you've given up the science field altogether. Oh, I'm not, actually I'm still involved. I'm still involved, like, uh, but more and more. I'm getting more and more acting now than science. Yeah, I feel like it's two different worlds. It's conflicting because you have the scientific way of understanding something, and then when it comes to acting, it's more like behavioral, and people believe you know you you want to control your own ways of seeing things, not in a, in a, in a very scientific way, right? I, I feel like they're very interesting kind of contrasts in looking at life. I don't know if Charles, you agree or not. I mean, law is just as hard, right? As no, I, I agree. Well, I always write, I mean, in high school, I was on the student newspaper. And then in college, I, I wrote for the college newspaper. And I, as you mentioned, I was in the creative writing program. So the writing urge was always there, but sort of like Stu's grandparents, I didn't get any support when I was, I was finishing college. It was like, no, you're gonna be a doctor or a lawyer, make your, make your choice. <laughs> I mean, that was it. And so my thought was, well, you know, I'll, I'll be a lawyer, but I'll write on the side. However, that writing on the side didn't happen for about 30 years when a couple of friends pushed me to say, no, you got to You got to do it. You really got to get into it. And so I actually took the uh, playwriting course at New Federal Theater, which, interestingly enough, produced Gang Wong. And I knew within five minutes that I had been suppressing this urge and I've been writing ever since. And still working, still working full time as a lawyer. So it's, you know, these are long days. Wow. I mean, I think so many people have these dreams of doing things they want to do, but it's not sustainable or they've never been encouraged or pushed to do things they really want to do in life. And I think you're both examples of taking that dive into something you really love and to and to make it work. Right. Um, But so let's go back to the, 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 the beginning of the story that you created, this Gong Lum play. Uh, Charles, tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what it's about in a nutshell. Okay, well, we'll start um, again. We, we, we got the part where Stu came to the group. Yeah. And every, again, every week, Stu, you know, the actors came and they read it. Every week, Stu was reading a part that was clearly intended for a white actor or a black actor. And, um, you know, I'm very conscious of, of the Hollywood insensitivity 
to people of color. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, this, I said, we can't, I said, this, this is really not good. We got to do something because Stu is a faithful member. He comes all the time. So I'm there noodling, I'm, I'm mentally noodling on what, you know, what I can write for Stu that really can really sink his teeth into. And then my daughter comes home from college and she's taking a, she says, dad, I'm taking this course called Afro-Asia Intersections. And did you know that when the slaves were emancipated, Southerners imported these boatloads of Chinese men to work on the cotton fields in the Mississippi Delta because A, they thought they could pay them less than the black people and B, since they weren't citizens, they couldn't vote against the sharecropping system. And then the, C, there were exclusion laws which kept Chinese women out of America. So some of the Chinese men had relationships with black women. And I thought, bingo, here is something that I can start writing that will, that I, that will definitely work for Stu. And um, I set the play in the 1920s because my daughter's course also made me aware of the Supreme Court case, Gong Lum versus Rice, which ultimately where the Supreme Court held that it did not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution to exclude Chinese from white schools in Mississippi. So I, want, I wanted to get that, the lawyer in me wanted to get that case in the play. So I, set, so I set the play. It's a love story between a Chinese man and a black woman in the 1920s. And, and, that, that's, and it runs parallel to the timing of that, of that Gong Lum case. So um, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, so well, there's so many things to unpack there, because first of all, as you had mentioned before in a conversation that they don't teach these type of cases in law school. They're not told in history books in schools. So this untold stories of these kind of spaces in between these black and white binary um, storytelling, it does not exist. And we have to create them in order to, you know, poke into these small nuanced spaces, right? Yeah, yeah. to the extent that racism is highlighted in America, it's really about, it's really about black people. Like there's a case you learn in law school, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is, which held that, it, you know, you could, you, that black people did not, they could be treated separately, but equally. Um, yeah. but, but nobody knows that the same thing happened to Chinese in the Gong Lung case. Right, so They're, Stu, you were, were you, did you, I don't, when did you move to New York? Because you were in Taiwan and then Argentina, which is, I think, a, a really interesting combination. And then you come to New York. How much did you know? Did you know anything about the Chinese in the American South? No, not at all. Uh, especially you know, being there in, in Argentina, was, uh, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. So coming here and learning about that and playing a role that represented um, an immigrant who comes over into this deep south was something that you had to kind of sink your teeth in also to understand the backdrop of this historical kind of um, movement. Right. Of course, of course. I, um, I, I know that, you know, we the, the Chinese has immigration all over the world and with all very uh Peculiar stories and uh, that are specific to each region, and I wasn't aware of the of the, what happened in the, in the American uh, South. So I'm, I I had to learn, and uh, it was, it was, it was I'm fascinated about it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating. I made a documentary about it. There's so many things Charles and I have so many things in common in our process and researching this kind of untapped story of the 
Asians in this kind of segregated South. So um, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, if people are just tuning in, I'm talking to Charles White and Stu Lee about this really interesting um, encounters through storytelling and how a lawyer turns into a playwright and a scientist turns into an actor and how this all kind of comes together and talking about these um, Afro-Asian um, history that we don't know about. So let's come back to it. All right, welcome back. I am talking here with Charles White and Stu Lee, both based in New York right now. I had the pleasure of meeting them when I was over there just a short couple of weeks ago um, for the Harlem Film Festival and just, uh, just, just enjoying the energy of New York. A very diverse space that we need to kind of like recognize you know i don't understand this this world this country now is so screwed up right you know we have so such a divisive um world of views and the whole surge of white supremacy is so troubling um because it is present in everything we do and so we talk about this race issues and referencing specifically charles this play you wrote um gong lum about the uh chinese in the segregated south in mississippi specifically in the 20s and Stu being the um lead character in it so let's pick it apart what it, um Charles, do you want to kind of do a recap again of the characters and what the story is based on? What is this interracial love story all about? Yes, yes. It's, it's set in the Mississippi Delta in the 1920s. And the Delta had, there were Chinese grocers who had, who had initially, they were, brought, they were brought to the Delta to work in the cotton fields. They rejected that work because they realized they could not make any money to send home. And that was the whole, that was the whole point of working in America. And so they opened up grocery stores in the black neighborhoods. And because the exclusion laws kept out Chinese women, kept, kept Chinese women out of the state, some, some of the Chinese men had relationships with black women. And the play really is about a romance between a young Chinese grocer and a young black teacher. And the, and the antagonist is the Chinese grocer's father. His father, who is who is traditional Chinese, he's been in Mississippi. He's been in Mississippi for decades, but he's very traditional, and he wants his son to marry a Chinese girl. He says, "He says it's okay. You can fool around with a with a, with a with a Negro girl, but you are supposed to marry a Chinese woman. And when the time comes, you will go to China, or we will send to China, and you will bring back a Chinese wife." But meanwhile, the young character Joe, who Stu, Stu's character is Joe, says, "No, this woman." that I care for is right here and I want to be with her. And the father fights that tooth and nail. <laughs> and in the backdrop of the case, is, in the backdrop of the story is, is the Gong Lum case. Like the father pins a lot of his hopes on the Gong Lum case. Cause if the Gong Lum case ultimately holds that Chinese can go to white schools, he's like, this is why you cannot be with this black woman. We, we are moving up the ladder. We are getting equal rights. We are progressing. And you, you, you will be taking a step backwards. But as it turns out, the Ganglam case ultimately goes the wrong way. So, the, so, that, so that was the idea. It was a love story against the, back, against the backdrop of that case as a symbol of hope for, you know, for Chinese equality in America. And um, it actually, it's funny, the first version of the play, it was a 10-minute play just between it was Stu and a young Black actress. And it was just showing, you know, that they were in love and that the Ganglam case had come down and like, Stu's character is very idealistic. He thought, oh, if this case goes the right way, my child will be Chinese and he'll be able to go to all these schools. Whereas the wife said, well, no, 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 the, the child will still be black. So even if the case went the right way, it's not gonna work out for us. So that was the first one. And ultimately 
you know, over over a five year period, I expanded that ten minute play into into a full length play, um, which is the one this one that was just produced. So. Yeah, amazing, and 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 there's so much that's relevant today because even though we don't live in a legalized segregated society, there are still many segregated spaces, right? I mean, there's still places and 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 differences that we still kind of keep our walls up. Um, so let's talk about that, and and to maybe for. Um, our listeners who may not know what Jim Crow really was, this idea of these miscegenation laws, the fact that you cannot legally date a white woman, but so between an Asian and a black person, was that legal? That was okay because it was only what didn't consider somebody yeah. of white blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like, don't touch white people. It's like, like, you all are kind of like, we don't really know what to do with Asians, but you're definitely not white. So, you know, I mean, the Asians, they all lived in the colored area. The stores were in the colored area. The customers were colored, everything. That, that was, that was the, that was the, that was the way. But if you were the, half white, half Asian, were you still considered Asian? Kind of like the black mix? Yeah, I think it's, you'd still be Asian. So once you have a, you know, the, the one drop rule, right? As long as yeah. you have color in you, you're technically not pure. And this is the reason for these miscegenation laws was to try to keep the purity of the race. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Although plantation owners were stepping over the line for generations. Right, right, right. And then you get into the whole complexity of like the different shades, if you will, the colorism within even African-American communities, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the case I talked about before, Plessy versus Ferguson, which, which it, basically it was a, a black man got on a train and he got into the, in the front car and he was told to get in the be- into the back car and he wouldn't. And that was Homer Plessy. And uh, the case ultimately held that no, it's separate but equals fine. As long as the facilities are equal, you, you can still go to the back. You have to go to the back car. And now Homer Plessy was of mixed heritage. He actually looked white. He had black blood, but he looked white. But he told them, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not white, but I'm still not going in the back. Ah. So, yeah. So it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, the one drop rule was very much. In effect, and no, it's funny. I understand the one drop rule because if you think about it, if the one drop rule makes makes you black and you're a, you're a slave owner, you know your wealth increases every you know your wealth increases with every new slave, regardless of whether it's it's got a white two black parents or a white parent or a Chinese parent or whatever. I mean, it's you know it's, your your wealth increases by per slave. So I mean, so I economically cap from a capitalist standpoint, I totally understand why it works that way. But economically, if you do have any percentage of black blood or colored blood, you were pushed aside to be othered and yeah. disenfranchised from accessing anything that would get you any sense of chance of mobility, social mobility, right? Exactly. And that, so. now the character of in my play of Charlie, who plays Joe's father, he's very aware of that. And he's like, you know, we're, we're, we, we can move, we, we, we can become quasi white but you can't take this backward step of, of associating with a black woman like that. Right. So, okay. So let's talk about this mixed race situation because um, you expose it on both sides. Interestingly. So you have, you know, the, the, the character, the Chinese character who is white adjacent, who feels like he needs to keep the survival by keeping, keeping to themselves. And on, in the black community side, you also have some scenes where, um, you know, the brother of Lucy, uh, who, you know, is supportive of the relationship because in a way, does that serve them economically to have them in a better position? Whereas the friend, Lucy, 
she's a good friend is like, no, you know, you don't mix with, you know, Chinese or it's the same mentality, like, okay, you can have fun with them, but just don't marry them. Do you think it's really that same attitude again um, towards both parties? I think it is. I, I mean, you know, you know, the, the missing character in the play or the abs the absent character, you know, is the white supremacy. Yes. Yes. Which which forced those attitudes. Oh, it's I mean, there. Yeah. It's, it's loud and clear. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. So so that the so that the father figure, Charlie, he's like, no, 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 we have to be white adjacent. And then the black people, well, we can't trust these Chinese. They come into the store, they're they're, you know, they they come into our neighborhoods, they're making all this money and we're not. Yeah. We can't trust them, blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, Lucy's brother, he says, Well, wait a minute. If this guy likes my sister and he's doing well, he's certainly the best option she's ever going to have in this community. So I'm all for this. So does class trump, or I hate that word, um, overpower um, race? <laughs> you know, that, is that where you kind of play your cards? I don't yeah, know. That, that was certainly that was certainly that character's attitude. And he, and he has a line in there um, where he says, you know, you know, Joe's got money and you have a couple of kids with nice hair. Things will be really great for you. So, you know, the black community is kind of preoccupied with hair to some yes, extent. And yes, so I, a, I, I had to get, I had to get that. Oh, no, that's very real. That yeah. Note, that note in there. Right. And, um, so, so Stu, I mean, you also kind of come, come from a very, um, you know, you, you're ethnically Chinese, but living in Argentina, you had a lot of cultural influences that were not Chinese. And so what were your thoughts you know, entering, I don't know if this helped you with your character or not, but um, to to imagine what it's like to have a mixed race relationship. Did you have mixed race relationships when you were in Argentina that you could apply these acting kind of from? Um, so, well, and I actually going growing up, I was, um, I don't know, but not forced by my parents, but it's just me long just uh, focus on studying typical chinese family yeah yeah schools and uh not not wasn't dating much but i i had a i had a couple of um uh, dates uh that were locals argentine girls and uh um but we yeah we keep it personal private and yeah did your parents ever tell you that you you should marry make sure you marry Chinese, whatever you do, your date is okay. Did they have that conversation with you? Um, they, they, yeah, they, they may have said something like preferences, like, uh, but they never said it explicitly. Um, so I thought it was, you know, like, <laughs> if it's not, if it's not uh, explicitly said, then, um, then I guess it's okay. But I, but, he, but actually my sister, she's, um, she, she married, um, uh, and uh, my you know, the, the local Argentine and uh, and it's so we are and you know we're all happy now so interesting so yeah. there are no in your family personally it, it didn't affect you you didn't have the pressures to kind of end up with your own kind kind of no no so. I think at the end it's, like, it's up to us so Okay, well, you're, you're lucky, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I guess that was a time period too. Although I still think that, you know, interracial mixing today is still an issue for some families. But where do, let's talk a little bit about the idea of anti-Black 
mixedness because I feel like interracial mixing seems to be okay, but when it comes to mixing with someone new from the black community, for Asians, there is this there is this myth, there are these ideas that are very negative against people with dark skin. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Because Charles, I think you work that really nicely into the play to address these issues, but it speaks to today too. Where does this anti-blackness come from? Um, Stu, can you speak to maybe even in Chinese culture, do you think that that comes from something historical or how do you think these beliefs came? Uh, honestly, um, so I, I might not be able to give a, a good examples, but because just because of my background, um, I, I grew up growing up in Argentina, and actually, I don't know if you're aware, but this uh, Argentina is one of the, it's the only, maybe it's one of the the uh, uh, South American countries with the least um, uh, smallest black population, oh. and and that has to do. Uh, where well, there are th two theories about it. One is uh, because because you know during these uh, the, the slave trade uh, back then in the, the 19th centuries, uh, it happened everywhere in in South America, and yet Argentina, at least when I left about 15 years ago, it's the black population is almost non-existent. So so two theories about it explains this. One is that there were policies against the, the population um, by se segregating. The black community and and putting them in places with uh, poor infrastructure and, and healthcare, and another another one is is, is because of this uh, strong uh, inter interracial uh, mixing with uh, with these uh, white uh, immigrants. There were there were policies that encourage strong immigration, and and that's the time because it's a, it's like a dilution, right, and of the of the black race and. Um, and so, so growing up, um, I I never actually I never met a black person back in Argentina, and so so. But then when I came here, then yes, I with friends of my parents and I hear them saying make comments about that, uh, like you you mentioned, like uh, so like they were not uh, they were not looking forward like mixing with uh, you know like. Um, uh, yeah black partners and for the kids yeah it's definitely uh, not a u.s based thing it's a global issue of anti-blackness um yeah it's sort of like for instance i mean south asians are darker than north asians and i understand there's there's an issue there oh yeah oh huge it's within the same race but different complexions just cause cause the problem yes Yes. Well, historically, I guess for me, speaking of like my when I lived in Hong Kong for many years, you know, you have the southern Chinese versus the northern Chinese and the northern Chinese tend to be more fair skinned. Right. And the southern Chinese, because a lot of them were farmers, were darker skinned. So it kind of like um, got intertwined with the idea of classism because the darker skin assumed that you were a farmer and therefore lower class. And so that speaks to the colorism, but to speak specifically to anti-Black racism, you know, historically China and, and Africa had a very strong relationship for many years. Uh, I don't think that they really had that sense of um, anti-Blackness. And so I'm just wondering how you all felt about that. I mean, Charles, in your research or just living in New York, are there some ways that inform you of where this came from? Well, within the play, what I tried to do within the play was write, again, Charlie is the, is the father who is very much wants to be white adjacent. And I, I didn't want to write 
you know, just a Chinese redneck, like I hate black, I hate black, I hate black. I want to, I want to show that there, there was a logic to his racism slash colorism, because if you're white adjacent, privileges came along with that. And if you were not, the closer, the further away you were from that, and the closer you were to associations with the black people, you know, you lost privileges. There were things you were never going to get. Like for instance, you know, um, Stu's character Joe and the and the wife Lucy ultimately have a baby, and baby's half Chinese, half black. But one one, you know, that's an interesting one. I guess it's a two drop rule in that case. It's it's everything but white. <laughs> and um, but but again, that baby would not have any of the privileges of of a, of a white child. It would be treated like oh, the one the one the one drop of black is enough to make the baby's black. Yes, it's Chinese, considered black. And so I want, I wanted Charlie's character to show that, listen, there's, you know, it isn't like I'm this horrible person. It's like, this is where we are. This is Mississippi in the 1920s and trying to live the best life I can. And I want that for my son and you will not get it if you are with a black child. Uh, so I tried so to show, yeah, so there's a re there was a reason to it. I wanted to show that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're digging into some pretty deep issues that really relate to today and why um, individuals select certain types of partners in order to better their futures. So is, is it about what happened to love when it comes to marriage? Is it really more about survival and economic mobility? And, you know, we look at all these different pieces. Um, Stu, you're just, um, you know, you just became a young father. Congratulations. And Charles, you have, uh, you said you have two children. I don't know. You have a daughter in college. Uh, no, they're both graduate. They're both graduated. Oh, okay. Right. I have, two, I have two kids in California, both adults. Okay, but you know, as fathers, as parents, you know, it's really interesting from that perspective to think about what you want for your children and are you willing to do certain things for the sake of it, you know, maybe it's not social mobility today, maybe it's a different word for it. But um, let's hold that thought and then let's take one more quick break. If people are just tuning in, I'm talking fabulously with Charles and Stu about these complex issues that make us think about these Afro-Asian tensions that are still playing out today and why mixed race relationships is still kind of like a contentious subject. So let's, uh, let's talk about that in our next part. Let's go. All right, back here with Charles and Stu from New York, uh, K2H, we are talking about interracial mixing. Let's talk about love because, you know, as parents, as students, as mothers and fathers and, and, and children, you want to have the best for your kids. When you're young, or the young people listening, you think that in an ideal world, love champions all. My daughter says that in my documentary, because I ask her in it. I say like, you know, what if you marry somebody, you know, mixed race and there's complicating. She says, yeah, so, you know, love, love has no color. She was so pure and innocent when she said that. But today there are so many ideas we have in terms of how we kind of think about marriage and our commitments to people. And race sometimes plays into, play. you know, I, I hate to say it, it does. So, Let's talk about that. How do you feel? I mean, do you think that love champions all? Well, you know, in the play, Stu's character, yes, he loves he loves this woman and he thinks he's an idealist. He's Don Quixote. He, he really thinks like, we love each other. We're both smart. We're hardworking. We're, we're going to make it no matter what. Whereas the father, Charlie, says, no, 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 you can't fight. No, you can't. So that so there was that there was that conflict going on between the tradition the tradition 
and the, you know, and, and all the racism imposed down on everybody versus, you know, the protagonist, I lo love, 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 we will triumph, we can make this, we can make this work, we can live happily ever after, we can have this ideal life, despite all these things on the outside. So, Romeo and Juliet, fall in love, don't think about the complications with the other families, you know. Although that, that, that ended kind of badly, though. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So, <laughs> um do we do things for love or do we think more practically now okay let me ask you this do you think you can learn to love someone well, my kids are like yours pure innocent hopeful yeah i mean i they my kids definitely know they are black and they know that, that there is racism but they are both dating they are both dating white at this point oh so how do you feel about that Oh, I'm fine. I'm really? fine. In fact, you know, it's interesting. My parents were actually, I mean, got to be decades older, but my parents were actually okay with it too. They never really, they never really said don't. Now, I'll tell you an interesting story. Like I was born in New York, but my parents are from the South and my mother took me, uh, God, I guess it was to my great grand, her grandmother's funeral when I was maybe three or four. And again, we were growing up in New York and I was in, I was in situations where I was, I was still, we talked about this before. I was like, I'd be like the only black kid in school, the only black kid in the neighborhood. And I was completely accustomed to white people. So anyway, one of my mother's uncles took me to some department store in North Carolina and he lost track of me. And when he found me, I was playing tag with some little white girl. And I don't remember this. So the story is he grabbed me and brought me back home and said, and said to my mother, you get this kid right back to New York and don't bring him back before he gets all of us lynched. Right. So that we need to talk about that because people, I think in our generation, you can hear, learn from mystery, history books, but lynching was a real thing. Yeah. Playing tag with a white girl in the South was- And I was like three or four. But still, <laughs> yeah. still, right? Yeah. 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 No, he, and she actually never brought me back. Huh. She never. I mean, you know, it's it's you know, I would have been you know the next Emmett Till or whatever. But she. Oh, God. Yeah. She, she never brought me back. But in terms of my own household, it was like, um, yeah, I she just they they I I never heard this. Oh, don't marry a white girl. Don't do this. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. It, I didn't. I never felt those particular restrictions. Yeah, Stu, how do you feel about that when you learned about these histories that you were never probably taught back in Argentina, you know, like this idea of lynching someone based on just color? Yeah, that's, uh, that's disturbing, uh, puzzling. And listen, Chinese, Chinese were lynched. Exactly. Chinese, Chinese were lynched. Yeah. yeah, this is horrible. For the same reason? Um, not as... I wouldn't say it's the same reason, right, Charles? I mean, there was a huge lynch right. lynching back then, but it was almost like because they felt they were threatened by the Chinese being too successful and they just yeah. basically, right. Yeah. So yeah. good question. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. They felt like these they're, they're coming to take our jobs. But why are white people less threatened by Asians than black people? Yeah, no, interesting. Again, there's no slave heritage there either. It's... um. Although the Southerners sort of tried, they almost tried to institute that. Like when they, again, when the slaves were emancipated and they were like two shiploads of, they, they sent for these two shiploads of Chinese men from Canton to work in the plantations. So they really wanted that. They wanted the Chinese to become sharecroppers. Right. And they, they were sort of, they were putting them in, you know, which would have been like modern day slaves. And the Chinese just said, no, culturally, they just said, no, we're, we're not going to do this. Yeah. And, and that did cause some problems. I mean, there, there were lynchings and shootings and all kinds of horrible things happened unless the Chinese resisted that. 
Yeah. But yeah, but treatment was different because they didn't come over in that slave context. But I think that's one of the reasons that reinforces why Chinese kept to themselves. They are aware, acutely aware of the dangers and how people, white people treated black people back then. And so they would make sure they kept to themselves, don't associate with black customers, don't, you know, back to the store story, um, you avoided. And so that's why um, Stu's character in Gong Lam in your play, again, raises this issue of you're crossing the line. You're not supposed to date Black people. You're supposed to keep to yourself, right? But then you fall in love with someone. And then how do you deal with that? With all the pressures and complications that come with mixed race relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, can love, going back to the idea of love, can that conquer in a space where the setting was so segregated and black and white and just telling you who you can and cannot be with. You know, there, there are examples of where it did. Um, you know, one, one of the, uh, in my research, there was a uh, Chinese man named Wang An. It was a grocer in Stoneville, Mississippi. And he had a black wife and 12 children. And well, he did was, he legalize it? Was it publicized? Like, I mean, no, you know, not, it was common law if they actually, if they actually had a wedding service kids and he was the leader of that community i mean he oh. was the he was the leader of the chinese community and he had a black wife and 12 and 12 children and he was accepted by the chinese community yeah i'm sure there's some people who whispered behind his back like right, oh, he, exactly yeah, yeah. there's no but he was he was the accepted leader of the community so so it can happen in individual situations but i also learned from my research from my documentary there was not a as pleasant of a story in fact it was very tragic and disturbing um of the uh there's this one chinese grocer this is in georgia not mississippi but uh apparently he was secretly dating this black woman and so the son and his friends came and robbed him but they also tied him to a chair they mutilated him they they murdered him <laughs> and and this was not um, talked about in the Chinese community. They don't even want, they don't, they don't even want to address this issue. But I heard the story from the black community because they all knew about this case, but it was a hush hush story. But again, sex complicates things. Yeah. Yeah. No. It always boils down to that because miscegenation law is also based on, comes down to sex. Yeah. And, and my character, Melvin, in my play is, he's different. He sees, he's, he's got the vision like, no, this is actually a good thing. Oh. This, my sister and this Chinese man, this is, you know, her prospects with this Chinese man are much better than they would be with one of the local sharecroppers here, because that's the only other option. Right. So right. He, again, again, so, you know, it's funny when you're writing a play or a film, your characters have to be somewhat extraordinary. Yeah. And how do you do that? Yeah. It, it's like they've got, they've got to be somehow above the fray. I mean, one of the principles is what makes this day different from any other day. So I've taught that in a million, in a million playwriting classes. So unique, or, or even take on with the one Scarlett O'Hara. Against all odds, she's got to save that plantation, from, you know, from civil war damage, et cetera, et cetera. Like so from a playwright's perspective, you have to raise the stakes for each character within the context to that so that historical backdrop. That you you need you you need players of some heroic dimension. Yeah. So how is Stu's character? Um, the heroic dimension, like you say, I mean, he defies all the structures around him, right? Stu, how did yeah. you, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like how your character, how did you make your character? I mean, it's written for you, but then you also have to embody it with how you put yourself in the role. Did you see yourself as a hero? 
as a character, yeah, I, I feel like the yes, as a as an immigrant, a hard worker, and trying to get what I want, uh, but I have to navigate navigate through obstacles and the system, and being optimistic, or maybe overly optimistic, in this case. Yeah. yeah. There was also Sue's character also had that that other dimension of being a paper son. Yes. Did you want to explain that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people do not know what a paper son is still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, listen, that there's, th there's certain things in that play that were certain things were definitely for a black audience and other things were for a Chinese. Yes. Audience. You brought both in. <laughs> and a paper son, essential, essentially, because of the exclusion laws, Chinese people who were already here would actually buy a false set of papers. A false set of citizen papers, and actually, and I remember the, the cost was like twenty four hundred bucks, which was a lot of money. Which was a lot of money back then. Wow! And and they would send the papers over to. They'd send the papers, or at least somehow get the papers, knowledge of the papers back to people in China, and the Chinese immigrants would have to like, like in Joe's case, Joe the character, he would have to memorize everything, everything that he got from his father, his uncle in this case, because it wasn't really his father. So essentially. They were false. They were false citizen papers. Everything was, you know, an immigrant would come over. He would have fake. He would have fake papers. Yeah. Um, he would have been told everything of, in let's say Deltaville, Mississippi, and have to, you know, and they'd be held on Angel Island detention, and have to recite facts, facts, memorized facts about his life in America, which he never had, because he's really impersonating someone else, with with the fake citizen papers. And so, and that, that happened quite a bit. And so the, those Chinese men who came out with fake papers were known as, were known as paper sons. In fact, um, in fact, Henry Yook, who played the father in the play, his, his father was a paper son. He, yeah. said, he, he said he was essentially playing his, his own father because that, right. that was the attitude of his father as well. Yeah, so my great-grandfather in my research also was a paper son. I think everybody during that era came over were oftentimes yeah. paper sons. But yeah. that complicates things, right? Like, um, Stu, you thought your character was this immigrant who had to adapt to this um, American South, which is not culturally yours to begin with. And um, it's, it's so complex because you can't be yourself, first of all. You, you have to adapt this new identity. And then within that new di identity, you are still trying to search for how to develop your life there, right? There's like this, all these internal things going on. And I think there's role-playing in the character that Charles wrote that you played, right? It, it's right. quite complex, complicated. Yeah, new identity, <laughs> new, you're a different person, you're a different cult, adapting to a new culture, new, new language. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, how do we want to wrap this up? Because I feel like there are so many stories that we tease out interracial um, relationships, the historical backdrop of Jim Crow that a lot of people don't know about, Paper Sons, you know, the immigrant story, the untold immigrant stories. Um, what, what are some issues or maybe some thoughts on, I guess, going back to African-American Asian relationships that we can pull from this experience to address how we apply it to today. Like how do we look at relationships and how do we move forward with these conversations um, when we see increasingly violent um, situations kind of happening and tensions happening between the two communities? Yeah, 
I mean, that's, 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 boy, that's an eternally tough question. Um, you, you know, a lot, a lot of hate to me, to some extent is based on ignorance. Like if you've never been exposed to someone of a different culture and all you know is what you hear about. Well, well, for instance, I mean, a lot of hate crimes against Chinese. Now, some people like they blame all Chinese for COVID. Yeah. And boom, the next thing you have, I mean, that's insane. That, that, I mean, it's, it's just insane. I mean, think, think about it. I mean, just people like they just want that and they, and they react, it's just horrible stuff. So it's, some of it, it's, it's just ignorance. And that's just got to be, you know, it's just got to be rooted out, just have to fight it. You know? How? Do you think by storytelling? I, I think. Storytelling story- and getting people to come see the stories. <laughs> yeah. Right. So how do we get people to come see the stories? And, you know, yeah. to not give it to the people who already know these stories, but people who need to see these stories, right? Yeah. But you have to create them first. We have to create stories that flip the script that show histories that we don't know about, right? And we're informing ourselves through this process of creating them. Yeah, because most people did not know, they know nothing about Chinese in the Delta and the fact that there were Chinese and black relationships in the Delta is like another realm altogether. Like I have an actor friend, he's black, and he recently, he did the, um, he did the DNA stuff, the, um, what do you call it? What's the yeah, what's uh, Ancestry.com or Ancestry.com. Uh, the other one. And found out he had a Chinese ancestor. <laughs> And I said, and I said, he's in LA. And I said, oh, well, it's too bad you're in LA because I just wrote a play all about that. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'll write a sequel because he'd be, he'd act, you know, so when you look at him, you can say, oh, you know, I can maybe there is that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you wouldn't normally think, but once you hear about it, I say, yeah, okay, I could see that. So I have to write a sequel because, you know, Stu's character, they have a baby. I said, the sequel. Right. For, the sequel is the baby story. Yeah. You know? And then he meets, and he meets one of your relatives in Augusta, Georgia. <laughs> well, it's funny because I had a screening of my film recently in, uh, here in San Francisco uh, at the campus, and there is um, uh, an African Asian woman who I'm African American, and she was like completely. Um, it, it it resonated with her in so many ways because there are no stories that bring together these two communities to understand what kind of what yeah. what the context is, you know. In, in yeah, we got we got to tell them, we got to market them, and just get them out there. Yeah. Uh, so people can understand each other just a little bit better and not just re- not just rely on ignorant generalizations. Yeah. Tell yeah, me. I agree. I agree. I think I think the more we see the less uh, it's, it's become like a you know like strange. Right? Yes. It's become more uh, uh, normal and normal. It's, yeah. it's already normal but just uh, just because people don't talk about it or don't haven't seen just unaware and the things like oh. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I had so to blame media. More. Yes, the, the mainstream right? media also should help in that, that respect. Yeah. All, all those old kind of problematic ways of depicting Asians and orientalizing or exoticizing or sexualizing yeah. Asian females, exactly. for one thing, yeah. or the stereotypical Asian male, you know, we talked about that last time is the, the hypo mask, the, the, you know, the Asian male, not sexualized kind of, and, and then the sexualized oh. black female body, all these things are created from, from media and, and it's really frustrating. So, yeah, yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do. And I think it starts with these kind of conversations, uh, starts with storytelling and, and creating new stories like yours, Charles, and, and Stu for inspiring Charles to write a play <laughs> for you to play in that kind of weaves together these 
historical, you know, these beautiful connections that we don't know about. So I think the space is very special. And so thank you so much for sharing all of your, your stories. And I, I encourage you to continue creating more because that's how we're going to change things. We're going to shift the narrative by people like you. So congratulations to both of your work. Look forward to all of the stuff that you're going to be doing going forward. Stu, uh, again, um, parenting is another whole another role <laughs> to dig into. Uh, congratulations for both of you and your great work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Krista. Thank you. This is Charles Way and Stu Lee here with me at K2H.